You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. All right, it gives me great pleasure to, uh, to introduce to you uh, Dr. Jody Craig, who is a visiting assistant professor of Polish studies in the Department of German, Nordic, and Slavic uh, here at UW-Madison. Uh, she has a PhD in Slavic languages and literature from the University of Michigan and Arbor, where uh, her dissertation, I have to just you know, say her dissertation title because it matches so well, The Sandbox of History, Nationality, Sexuality, and Historical Impulse in Contemporary Polish LGBTQ Culture. Um, For the past two years, she has worked as a lecturer also at the University of Michigan, so we were happy that we could whisk her away from that. Um, Her research explores how LGBTQ narratives, particularly those that draw on historical figures or communities, negotiate national belonging. And her current book project stems from her interest in how Polish history is represented queerly in the present. Uh, The book chronicles representations of sex between Russians and Poles in the 19th, 20th, and 21st century Polish literature, film, and theater, interrogating the colonial or post-colonial framework through which such relations are often understood today. And uh, I'm sure that her lecture is drawing on that, queering Polish-Russian relations, Soviet tops, and Polish bottoms. So please welcome Dr. Jody Dreik. I wanted to start out actually with a content warning because I will be talking about uh, rape and sexual violence largely in a metaphorical context, but nevertheless, I feel like it could be people who are sensitive to such topics, and I want to let you know ahead of time. So my research more broadly concerns, as Manon just said, representational strategies and erotic and or affective modes of queer historiography in contemporary Polish lesbian uh, and gay fiction and performance. This particular presentation is about contemporary Polish author Michał Witkowski's 2005 controversial novel, Lubiewo, which was shortlisted for the most prestigious literary prize in Poland in 2006 for the Nike, and translated into English in 2010 as Love Town. It has also appeared in translation in at least 10 other languages. Uh, The novel was dramatized and performed, turned into a collaborative art project in the form of a graphic novel, which I have a copy of, which I will uh, have David pass around. and, and, and has inspired the names and decor of a number of gay bars. One such bar existed in Krakow for a few years, but I think it's since uh, closed. I believe it's safe to say the novel's popularity, or if not popularity, then at least celebrity, has left an indelible mark on queer culture in Poland. Michał Witkowski himself uh, is a regular fixture in contemporary Polish pop culture, although I think public fascination with him has somewhat died down over the years. Uh, He is often referred to as the enfant terrible of 21st century Polish literature, due in part to his affinity for alter egos and his penchant for extravagant, rebellious, often controversial commentary and dress. 
Uh, here he is a few years ago as Miss Gizzy, a personality he adopted, he had adopted for a few years. Uh, Miss Gizzy was a fashionista and blogger, and it turned out later that this was part research for a new novel that he was writing, uh, and also part publicity stunt. So, as you can see here, uh, this was in 2015, I believe, uh, and went as Miss Gizzy to a fashion show, and his, his apology was undercut a bit by a post that he had posted to social media right before he went to this event, in which he said, get ready for my controversial hat, essentially. Um, but yeah, so he's known um, as a quite controversial uh, figure. So this is the writer who is responsible for Lubievo. Um, and this presentation is gonna touch on some of the key themes of my analysis of Lubievo, uh, namely how it leverages shock value through cultural anxieties around Polish-Russian relations, um, and also how it presents a kind of queer alternative that may function to complicate traditional tropes of, of colonialism and post-colonialism. So first, I wanna introduce the novel. Uh, Witkowski's novel builds a fictional ethnography of a lost era, permeated with nostalgia for socialist Poland and for the seemingly plentiful queer sexual encounters in parks and Soviet barracks. Lubievo is uh, composed of three related sections. The first of these is called The Book of the Street, in which the narrator, who is also named Michał, uh, and his friends recall cruising in the 1970s and 80s in Wrocław, a city on Poland's western border. The second section, entitled The Lewd Beach, Czakowski Beach, uh, describes the capers of Michaszka, also the name of Witkowski's real-life alter ego at the time, uh, and fellow queens on Lubiewo, the eponymous nude beach, again close to the German border, and which is figured in the novel as the border of Europe. Uh, here they reminisce about the past, but also have multiple unsettling encounters with emancipated gay men. These encounters uh, compose what many consider to be Witkowski's strongest social critique. He rejects gaye, gay, or a politicized sexual identity imported from the West in favor of a sexual subculture that embraces its peripheral abject status because an escape from restrictive social norms and the politics of respectability is only possible on this periphery. In the last section, The Atlas of Polish Queens, each chapter is loosely devoted to recurring characters in the novel, characterized, or categorized rather, into types of queens. Michał, the author's narrative proxy, blurs the line between the authorial and narrative voice, which gives the book an authentic, almost reportage type feel. And the stories read as part autobiography or autofiction, part ethnography or oral history, um, and part gossip brag, which results, as the narrator explains, in, quote, a faggy decameron. <laughs> in the first section, the book of the street, the narrator is interviewing two aging queens. He uses the word chalty in Polish, uh, which has a somewhat derogatory connotation, uh, but Witkowski is using it as a kind of reclaimed term here, um, about their lives under communism. They regale him with stories from their glory days in the, Pol the People's Republic of Poland, a time when the parks that served as their cruising grounds were packed with drunk, masculine Orpheuses, 
which is the term that the queens fondly and ironically nicknamed their sexual partners. This is based on the lyrics of an Anna German song. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Anna German. Um, she sang in Russian and in Polish, so this is an important figure in this, this novel. Uh, and one didn't have to worry about employment, housing, or food, as these things were ostensibly guaranteed by the state. One of the most controversial aspects of Witkowski's novel is its transformation of a political and military occupation of Poland into a sexual playground. The old girls, the characters Patrycja and Lucrezia, wax nostalgic about their favorite spot, the barracks full of lonely Soviet soldiers. They share their memorabilia with the reporter Michał, a leather bag full of decrepit mementos and relics from those Russian soldiers that is only opened on special occasions, quote, to preserve the fragrance. <laughs> they shout, the fragrance will get out, for God's sake, don't open it. We only open them on anniversaries. They'd stashed their sorry relics in the bags. Soldiers' belts, knives, foot wrappings, a few sepia or black and white photos torn from identity cards with the purple half moons of large, invalid seals. On them, mugshots of 20 something Russian muscle men with potato noses, wholesome <laughs> shoemakers' faces, or ugly and crooked mugs, forelocks of hair hanging over their faces, dedications in Cyrillic on the back. Over the kitchen door, instead of a holy icon, they have a length of rusty barbed wire hanging from a nail. They'd cut it down recently. It came away easily. They twisted it a bit to the right, left, done. They stuffed their pockets with the barbed wire so they'd have some for Uterina and the others for later on when there was nothing left. They've painstakingly gathered materials from the ruins of the barracks as those reminders of Soviet occupation are being bulldozed to make way for new malls, office buildings, parking lots, and other hallmarks of capitalism and by extension consumerism. Their nostalgia indexes the ever-widening gap between their youth under socialism and Poland's new capitalist reality, but it also belies a fetishization of the soldiers who were stationed in Poland as a reminder of Soviet dominance a longing for those potato-faced Russian recruits who physically dominated the queens as they kneeled on the dirty barrack floors or spread their legs joyfully lying on heaps of slag. The above scene is also suffused with religious imagery as the queens have replaced the icons and other religious paraphernalia common to Catholic Polish households with items representative of Russian military occupation. Barbed wire hangs where the Virgin Mary might otherwise be, Official military identification papers replace the prayer cards given for sacraments, uh, funerals, and other moments of religious significance. Revered holy relics are uh, composed of various accoutrements of Soviet uniforms. It seems blasphemous given that Polish Catholicism, considered the bedrock of Polish national identity, was antithetical to Soviet ideology, at least in the, uh, at least in the popular imagination, uh, not to mention the fact that Polish national identity is, as Timothy Garton Ash notes, quote, historically defined in opposition to Russia. The queens have created their own archive, one that evidences their sexual experiences, but also speaks to the Soviet Union's military presence in Poland. Their willingness to give themselves up freely to penetration by Russian soldiers reflects on and undermines the popular Polish narrative of resistance to Russian imperialism. The Russian soldiers fuck the Polish queens in what is presented as the most coveted sexual experience in the entire novel, an encounter between the colonizer and colonized, 
a rewriting of a common sexual trope, which can also be read as a queer relation between a top and a bottom, a dominant and submissive. And I wanna just note here that the designation top and bottom can prove problematic as those designations are not necessarily coterminous with the terms dominant and submissive, um, although they overlap. Uh, in Lubievo, however, I argue that they do indeed correspond, and much like in gay male sexual practices, the relations of power within these sexual configurations are often flexible. So Lubievo performs a contested colonialism that ostensibly reflects Eastern, Europe, uh, Eastern European experiences of Russian or Soviet political or territorial expansion. The novel plays with tropes of colonial narratives, often enacting specific features of Polish post-colonial academic and political discourse in order to challenge the conservative ideology that underlies the idea that Poland is a post-colonial space. Lubiewo others the colonizer, in this case Russian soldiers, as many countries and cultures west of Russia do, positing them as rough, backwards, simple, but it also deviates from Western Europe's and, and former satellite states scripts, so to speak, by positioning them as the ultimate object of desire. Today, Poland is often talked about in terms of servility to the West and the Eastern Europe, uh, uh, and the European Union, rather. Uh, for example, Tomasz Kietliński and Joe Lockhart characterize Poland's political and military slavery to the U.S. as, quote, spreading its buttocks in a master-slave dialectic. And the former foreign minister, Radek Sikorski, once said that Poland gave the US a blowjob. Witkowski's heroines, however, locate their sexual utopia in Russian occupation and enact what I call a colonial bottoming or an ecstatic masochistic position with national and sexual signification to the East. Witkowski, in addition to his critique of capitalism and contemporary gay identity, mocks the mainstream Polish historical narrative of moving from oppression to freedom, occupation to autonomy, stagnation to development, as well as other narratives of progress tied to capitalism and globalization. Lubiewo challenges these tropes through a mapping of pleasures derived from occupation. It takes its pleasure in the bad socialist past and in a decidedly queer Slavic brotherhood one that allows flexible and pleasurable power relations between the Russian and the Pole. Uh, Lubievo takes up the question of Russian colonialism and Polish victimhood, for instance, by mobilizing and theatricalizing, or perhaps even caricaturing, certain threads of colonial and post-colonial narratives. Among them, military occupation, linguistic oppression or dilution, the engendered relations, metaphorical uh, or otherwise, of sexual domination and rape. While the Russian soldiers themselves figure in only a few anecdotes uh, within the novel, references to Russian culture and a certain kind of Slavic essentialism, sometimes blurrily combined with Russian imperialism, are littered throughout the novel. Indeed, in many cases, they structure not only the imagination and sexual desires of the queens, but are deeply ingrained in the novel's dense intertextuality. Before I analyze some of these instances, however, it is worth taking a moment to outline the post-colonial debate and its relation to conservative nationalist discourses, uh, both of which Witkowski gleefully attempts to skewer. Whether Poland can be considered post-colonial or not has been debated heatedly in both academic and popular discourses. 
Many consider the term appropriate in light of Poland's history. As the coveted object of imperial designs in the late 18th century, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was partitioned by Russia, Prussia, and the Austro-Hungarian empires. And as a result, Poland, as a geopolitical entity, ceased to exist from 1795 until 1918. Then from 1918 until 1939, it functioned as an autonomous state. Uh, but World War II saw it divided between Nazi Germany and the USSR. After the devastation of World War II, Poland was reconstituted as the Soviet-backed Polish People's Republic. While the PRL, PRL technically lay beyond the borders of the USSR, many regard this period as Soviet occupation. However, other critics argue that imperialist incursions into sovereign Polish territory in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries were fundamentally different from classic colonial examples, which have been theorized extensively in American and Western European academic circles, and therefore must be talked about in new, more geographically and historically specific terms. Uh, these debates, while they employ multiple arguments, are at their heart not so much about the countries of Eastern Europe as authentic post-colonial space as they are about the ambiguous and mutable nature of post-coloniality itself and the moral and cultural implications of identifying as post-colonial. David Cioni Moore, in his article, is the post in post-colonial, the post in post-Soviet toward a global post-colonial critique, argues that Eastern Europe has been largely ignored in the context of post-colonial studies. He and other well-known scholars of Eastern Europe like Claire Kavanaugh and Eva Thompson point to former Soviet and Soviet-influenced territories as a blank space on the post-colonial map. Moore's argument hinges upon a cursory liter literature review of recent post-colonial theory Yet his analysis of these works is convincing. For example, he lists all of the countries that Ella Shohat mentions in notes on the post-colonial, and the 27 countries of Eastern Europe and Eurasia that constitute those regions are conspicuously absent. Shohat does allude to the Soviet Union, but those references are almost entirely associated with its collapse, and in addition, are limited to a concern for the impact of its dissolution on third world communities. Moore uses this example to demonstrate a kind of unconscious blind spot in post-colonial studies, which he and a handful of other scholars began to interrogate in the 1990s. Moore is joined by Kavanaugh, Thompson, and Darius Skurczewski in hypothesizing why this gap in the literature, especially in foundational texts, exists. An accusation common to these scholars is that the Marxist origins of post-colonial studies in the West blinded colonial and post-colonial theorists to the imperial nature of the Soviet Union and its predecessor, Tsarist Russia. Moore discusses the widespread belief that the first world largely caused third world ills and that the second world seemed to be the best alternative. He claims Marxist or leftist scholars were, quote, reluctant to make the Soviet Union a colonial villain on the scale of France or Britain, end quote, especially as theories emerging in the 1980s located capitalist expansion as a key factor in colonialist projects. Kavanaugh terms this absence a strategic forgetfulness on the part of post-colonialist theorists, 
Skorczewski, while agreeing with Moore and Kavanaugh, gives a less theoretical and more concretely historical reason, which may be ultimately more convincing. The USSR officially supported independence movements in the Third World in accordance with Marxist tenets and financially and politically supported communist activists struggling to assert themselves against Western colonial powers. This, of course, has been interpreted by most scholars as advancing Soviet interests rather than Marxist idealism. However, solidarity between leftist academics and the USSR both committed to actual political projects that tried to reclaim colonized territories and cultures seems a reasoning more substantial than purely ideological affiliation. The irony, however, of Soviet anti-colonialism when it was engaged in its own imperial projects, such as those, uh, as in those countries that were militarily coerced into the USSR or satellite statehood, uh, is not lost. Eastern Europe and Poland in particular occupy an ambivalent position in regards to any center, be it economic, geographical, or geographic or cultural. On the one hand, Poland belonged to a political, economic, administrative, and to some extent cultural empire with Moscow as the center for much of the nation's history, whether it be under the partitions or as a Soviet satellite state. And on the other, as many have claimed, Poles looked to the West for their intellectual and moral template. This strange positioning results in many deviations from the classical colonial post-colonial model, and perhaps most strikingly, reverses the directionality of Orientalism. Poland and many other Eastern European countries uh, who found themselves under Russian influence orientalized their colonizers, or perhaps more accurately, orientalize Russia in the same way that the rest of Europe and the West does, while simultaneously succumbing to the complexes inherent in being orientalized themselves by the West. Um, as we will soon see, Lubievo directly confronts this through an enact enactment of contested, orientalized, orientalizing subjectivity, where Russians are both Eastern brothers united against the West and sexualized exotic others. Uh, in addition, an inferiority complex vis-a-vis -vis the West, ostensibly caused by Russian imperialism and Soviet control, this is the narrative, is both motive and motif in conservative post-colonialist discourse. In order to combat what is perceived as the Polish mentality or a crisis of national identity and patriotic pride precipitated by colonization, conservative forces try to uncover an authentic Polish culture untainted by Russia or the West. Stanley Bill identifies post-colonial theory as, quote, useful to Polish conservatives because in its most simplified form, it fundamentally represents an ethical and political project with strongly essentializing tendencies. Bill argues that post-colonial theory as articulated in the Polish context provides a justification for both cultural essentialism and an anti-universalism. This is apparent in both Thompson's and Skorczewski's work as they both appeal to an authentic Polish culture that predates the partitions, a culture rooted in tradition, Catholicism, and Sarmatism. In Lubiewo, however, Witkowski takes up these discourses surrounding Poland's supposed colonial post-colonial condition and does something very different. His novel enacts the much maligned communist period as a colonial moment but a queerly utopic one. 
In doing so, he rejects both the West and its civilized, privileged status in the Eastern European imaginary, consequently denying purchase to the feeling of inferiority that the belated implementation of a capitalist economy and a democratic government supposedly entails. At the same time, the novel selectively embraces aspects of the post-colonial debate in order to engage it. Russian colonization, a quasi-orientalization of the colonizer that is also simultaneously an embrace of and identification with Western stereotypes of Eastern Europe, and an authentic Polish culture that is rooted in a kind of Slavic essentialism. So in Lubiavo, the queens, the Chote, much prefer their native, uh, native products, vacation spots, and men to anything imported from the West. The Polishness of a given item or person is highlighted as very important to the queens, but in the sense, both in the sense of nostalgia for the communist era when Western goods or Western men weren't available, and out of contrast to the rapid modernity and foreign fetishes of the West. For the queens, authentic Polish culture had never disappeared. It was and always has been closely linked to a larger Slavdom dominated by Russia. Witkowski's near parody of Polish colonial postcolonial discourse, instead of locating authentic Polish culture in the age of Sarmatism, rather draws upon a narrative that scholar Maria Janion explores in her book, Uncanny Slavdom. Contrary to scholars like Eva Thompson, Janion argues that Poland's first colonization happened long before the partitions. The aggressor was not Russia, in fact, but rather Western Christianity and the apparatus of the Roman Catholic Church. She locates this moment in the historic year of 966, the year Mieszko I converted to Christianity and thus linked Poland evermore to the West. Janion claims that this religious and thus cultural colonization by the Roman Catholic Church cut Poland off from its Slavic roots resulting in a kind of originary trauma. This, she explains, is the root of Poland's inferiority complex. Quote, maybe following in the footsteps of some romantics, we should posit that many of the Slavic tribes were badly Christianized and forcefully torn from their former culture. This is where we should search for the serious causes of rupture, humiliation, and a sense of deficiency that has been felt for centuries. The effectiveness of Lubievo's attention to the ties between Slavic cultures lies in the fact that, to quote Janin again, assignment to Slavdom can awake the suspicion of Slavophilia, or pan-Slavism, understood as yielding to Russian imperialism, which has always masked itself, masked itself with the slogan Slavic unity and has worked under the aegis of we brother Slavs. The problem of Poland and Russia appears here in all its exasperating glory, end quote. Perhaps we can instead say, uh, perhaps we can instead say that um, instead of advocating for pan-Slavism, Witkowski instead tying together the figure of the homosexual and that of an essentialized Slavdom advocates homoslavism, an ideology maybe even more threatening to those who believe Sarmatism represents Poland's true cultural heritage. So I want to move back to the novel itself. Um, and the idea of sexual positioning that the title of my talk 
promised. Uh, Lubievo makes no secret of the centrality of sex uh, in the lives of its protagonists. From the religious devotion with which the Chota attend to the memory of Russian soldiers, to their potentially dangerous liaisons with strangers on the picket, uh, the queens of Lubievo organize their lives around the sexual encounter. Of course, for the Chota in the Book of the Street, sex is more than any old path to physical release. In fact, Chota are rarely depicted climaxing. Rather, sex in Lubievo most often adheres to specific structures, uh, expressions of gender, sexual positioning, and national or colonial fantasies. In other words, sex is organized not only by physical need, but by psychic and social structures that play out on an individual and collective scale. Sex in Lubievo is most commonly depicted as a kind of rigidly gendered top-bottom relationship, one that involves a highly masculine, but not consciously so, man who orally or anally uh, penetrates a very uh, highly, very consciously so effeminate man. The words top and bottom in Western gay culture, while not explicitly prescriptive of gender, are indicative of both physical positioning and a hierarchy that can be closely connected to patriarchal organizations of power, and thus are sometimes thought of in gendered terms. Indeed, at least in the hegemonic understanding of topping and bottoming, power relations are inscribed in the sex act itself. Top, the penetrator and possessor of the phallus, therefore usually embodies dominance, power, and masculine privilege, whereas bottoms are considered passive, feminine, uh, or feminized through the act of penetration, um, and powerless. David Halperin, while arguing that ancient Greek sexual subjectivities were radically different from modern sexual paradigms and deducing continuities between the two is irresponsible, uh, describes Greek sexual relations between men as organized by civic and social relations of power, which manifested in specific inserter-insertee roles. Historically, the balance of power was heavily tipped in favor of the top, while bottoming indicated or conferred a loss of agency, sexual objectification, and lack of masculine privilege, which are all common attributes of women's experiences of patriarchy. Um, while the vocabulary for top and bottom in Lubievo doesn't exist per se, within the above framework, Luya, uh, which is the name for the kind of species of men they hunt, the type of men that they hunt, also uh, almost exclusively function as tops. Their penises are the only ones that matter. Their sperm, the elixir vitae for the chote. The narrator, seeking clarification as to what makes a man a louis, asks Lucrezia and Patrizia about the term, much to their delight. So, quote, what is a louis? My question is drowned out by wild squeals. What is a Louis? What is a Louis? Oh my God. Oh my goddess. Louis, what is it? Well, okay, let's say that you don't know. The Louis gives meaning to our lives. A Louis is a buck, a drunken young buck of a man, a macho scoundrel, a lout, a little darling, a guy who sometimes returns home through the park or lies drunk in a ditch, on a park bench at the station, or in a completely unexpected spot, our drunken Orpheuses. Because after all, queens don't go lesing it up with other queens. We need hetero meat. Queers can also be Luya, provided, uh, providing they're straight and tall as an oak, uneducated, because once you have a high school degree, you're no longer a real man, only some kind of intellectual. 
He can't put on any airs. He has to have a mug like a thigh, a face like leather. He can't show any feelings, none at all. So within the context of the novel, Luia are the only sexual partners appropriate for Chalte, a masculine-feminine pairing that seemingly belies an investment in heterosexual, homophobic gender regimes and resists much of the gender-troubling work done by feminist and queer, theories, queer theorists, which I may add is marked as Western in the novel. Uh, in many ways, the rigid essentialist dimensions of the Lui and Chota are meant as a response to the adoption and adaptations of queer theory in Poland in the late 1990s and early 2000s, and instead seems to reach back to earlier formations of the effeminate man as an invert or a man trapped in a woman's body. Excuse me. However, the experience of being trapped is negated by the Chalta themselves, as they make sure that we know that their gender inversion is a game. The narrator notes of the queens, quote, being a real woman is, is no longer a game. The game excites, but to actually accomplish it, no. Uh, it is the fantasy, the assumption of a, transgression, a transgressive role that excites the Chalta. Tuchalta having sex wouldn't be sex between men, it would rather more closely resemble lesbianism. The structure of the sexual encounter and the pleasure that results from it necessitates here a masculine top and a feminine bottom. Um, the Luya are the epitome of artless masculinity. They are non-emotive and must not care about or conform to any Western standards of beauty. They are the, quote, salt of the earth uh, an extension of nature, because they're described as a bitchek, literally a young bull, uh, straight and tall as an oak, right? And utterly uncultured and unintellectual. So the attributes of the Louis and his position here as penetrator is a key to decoding the colonial relationship between Russia and Poland as represented in Lubiewo. The Louis, as Patri uh, Patricia and Lucrezia explain, is the meaning of life, and he is also in many ways central to the meaning of the novel. A substantial part of the novel's action takes place either in the company of a Louis or in the never-ending hunt for one. However, while Louis in the context of the novel signifies working class, a potentially violent or criminal man, it is also imbued with a gendered and distinctly Slavic essentialism, one that is concentrated most strongly in Russianness or in a kind of Russian imperialist kinship. The following example juxtaposes Western and Slavic men. Michal, our narrator, reclines on the beach and watches as a few German tourists stroll by. He politely greets them, appreciating them for their cultured manners and their intellect. He watches them use a recycling bin. There's only one thing you can't do with Germans, he explains. They aren't Louis enough to fuck. Michal muses, quote, a Louis has to have a soul that's, how should I say it, more Russian, wider. He has to have a completely unpredictable nature and has to throw his empty vodka bottles in the bushes, not segregate them into recycling bins. And of course, he's not allowed to have a shaved or pierced dick. The Western Louis doesn't exist. That species appears east of the Oder River and stretches all the way to the far side of Russia, end quote. 
Luya, according to the narrator, doesn't fit Western models of masculinity, especially masculinity in Western gay cultures, which he associates with a masculinity that is conscious of itself. A reductive perspective, but one that he perpetuates throughout the novel. Uh, the thought and effort which goes into shaving or piercing one's penis ostensibly to produce a pleasing aesthetic effect, or in some cases to enhance sexual pleasure, in Lubievo constitutes a kind of artifice. This automatically disqualifies one from being a Lui. Lui-ness is effortless, natural, and perhaps most importantly, authentic, lending itself further to ethno-essentialist interpretations. In addition to possessing an authentic masculinity, the Lui should have a wide Russian soul. Witkowski invokes here the Russian soul as it was developed in Russian culture in the late 18th and 19th centuries, vis-a-vis -vis the Enlightenment in the West, linking the essentialism of the Louis masculinity to the spiritual condition of messianic homelessness, homelessness uh, which was considered inherent to Russian national identity and which was particu particularly conducive to the expanse, uh, expansion of the Russian Empire. In her summary of the Slavophilic interpretation of the Russian soul, Svetlana Boim mentions not only the Slavophiles' idealization and dehistoricization of the peasantry, who were regarded as the bearers of a communal spirituality, a concept alien to Western individualism, but she discusses the Slavophiles' imperial fantasies. Russian metaphysical nomadism, or holy wanderers, were, uh, was easily translated into the geopolitical expansion of the Russian Empire as the Russian soul wasn't constricted by national or ethnic borders. Russian thinkers in the 19th century um, thought that, quote, being Russian was not defined by ethnicity, but by allegiance to the empire and by religion, end quote. Uh, national identity was also inspired by a kind of cultural conflict with the West. Boim explains, Quote, the idea of the Russian soul developed directly in response to the German Geist and has something of an Oedipal relation to it. It was resentment rather than murder. Uh, the soul is opposed to enlightenment reason as well as to the cultivation of the body. In Lubieva, the Luya, be they Russian soldiers or Polish workers, uh, uneducated, simple, and aligned with an imperial, or as implicated in the novel, colonial imperative of Russia, are as subjects imbued with the political or masculine, uh, uh, masculine authority of the empire linked through a metaphysical spiritual brotherhood as represented by this Russian soul. Uh, Witkowski also invokes metaphors of the Russian soul as the endless exotic Russian steppe. Lucrezia and Patrizia, recounting their romances with Soviet soldiers, exclaim, quote, he was a Cossack, white face, mustache, a Cossack legionnaire. They smell so different, like the steppes, like Asia. Uh, here they allied the ethnic and cultural differences uh, between Cossacks and Russians, as well as the differences between the Soviet Union and the Russian Empire. They imagined Cossacks as representatives of an Asian, Eastern Russia, uh, and as uh, possessors of a nomadic Russian soul. In other words, a fetishized other. Uh, as much as the concept of Louis also encompasses true Poles, even Polish nationalists, it is also inextricably connected to the Eurasian East, one which, in an inversion of Said's paradigm of Orientalism, embodies masculinity, power, and domination. 
Here, Witkowski enacts a feature of the highly specific Eastern European experience of colonialism, the exportation of ideas to the East from the West, which includes this impulse to other the East. While Europe exoticizes Poland, Poland exoticizes Russianness. Uh, in Lubiewo, the exoticization includes an eroticization, which features Russia not only, uh, as not only politically and culturally desirable, but sexually dominant as well. Uh, the position of Luya as sexual tops and their textual association with Russian expansion in Lubiewo evokes a comparison with metaphors and actual histories of sexualized violence and rape that often describe the attack and conquest of one nation by another. An example of this is the title of a book by Stanisław Mikołajczyk, who was the prime minister of the Polish government in exile during World War II. The title of the book uh, was The Rape of Poland, The Pattern of Soviet Aggression. While this title certainly can be taken literally, as during the Red Army's invasion of Poland in 1939 and its march across Poland uh, between 1944 and 1945, many women of Polish and German descent were raped by Soviet soldiers. Um, and it also functions in a heterosexist society as a metaphor for the penetration of borders and the stripping of a nation's sovereignty and national identity. The motherland, represented as the female body, is vulnerable to sexual violence and the resulting defilement of its ethnic purity, uh, and therefore the male citizens of the nation must mobilize to stave off invaders who might usurp their power over her. A common enough trope, unfortunately, and one that has played out in horrific ways in a number of violent conflicts. The use of this metaphor in Polish nationalist discourse is highlighted in Tadeusz Konwicki's novel, A Minor Apocalypse, uh, a novel that deals with, among other things, Polish-Russian relations. One of his characters admits, quotes, you know what? You know, I'm gonna say something sacrilegious. Poland has been raped. She defended herself for a long time, she scratched and bit, but in the end, she submitted. And she took a certain delight in that passive, unwilling submission. She felt an ambiguous, strange, and somewhat filthy pleasure in being raped. This statement is described by the speaker as being sacrilegious, a recognition of the importance of positing Poland as a female victim in the national imagination and also lays bare the extent to which it is founded on sexism and patriarchy. Uh, Witkowski, of course, takes this blasphemy a step further. In Lubiewo, this metaphorical paradigm is used, but it is shifted and thus produces new meanings concerning the Polish-Russian relation. Penetration happens to male bodies, so a literalization of the penetration of borders of the ojczyzna, or fatherland in Polish, and while this is in line with the patriarchal and heterosexist conception of nation as woman, due to the feminization and symbolic castration of the bottom, the sexualized power relation between Russians and Poles in Lubiewo is eroticized and sought after. The bottom's consent and enthusiasm is what, is what transforms the metaphor of national rape into something that, according to those who propagate the idea of Russian colonialism and Polish martyrdom, constitutes a form of treason. I propose that we read Lubiewo as a particular re-envisioning of Polish history as an image that undercuts current dominant historical narratives which employ post-colonial rhetoric uh, with an alternative story, one told in the idiom of masochistic pleasure and which grants agency 
to the bottom. And But this is not to say that I think this is a narrative that should supplant dominant historical narratives, as I think that may risk erasing very real traumas. But rather, let us think of it as, as one that will allow us to interrogate uh, the basis on which these other dominant narratives are founded and to examine our own reactions to such perversions of history. Uh, reading the novel as an instance of textual colonial role play, especially through a queer theoretical lens, allows us this more nuanced approach to Witkowski's seemingly simplistic broad strokes attack on national sentimentality and progressive narratives of nationhood and sovereignty. In describing sadomasochistic, uh, sadomasochistic historical role play, queer theorist Elizabeth Freeman claims that historical play is, quote, a means of invoking history, personal pasts, collective sufferings, and quotidian forms of injustice in an idiom of pleasure. Significantly, Freeman doesn't quite subscribe to the idea of SM as redemptive or healing. Uh, nor as a blatant reproduction or manifestation of existing power structures, but rather is interested in the way sadomasochism can reconfigure, recode, or redistribute the corporeal and psychic effects of historical trauma. While the Chonta-Luya relationship doesn't quite fit the bill of sadomasochism in the traditional sense, there are elements, including the dominant and submissive positions during some sexual acts, and the queen's desire for humiliation and degradation, which echo that of an S&M dynamic. Uh, while sexual shame need not be attached to the bottom or submissive position in sadomasochism or otherwise, in Lubievo it is represented as an important part, in part uh, excuse me, an important part of the encounter. The Chota seek out degradation. They loiter outside prisons, inviting the prisoners to verbally hum humiliate and threaten them while they masturbate around the corner. In another particular, uh, particularly memorable episode of sexual humiliation, Madame Oleshnitska, a character in the novel, joins the narrator for a drink on the beach. He begs her to tell him a story, and so she recounts the time she stole her friend Kangaroo's Louie out from under her. He was the, quote, uh, quintessential Louis, legs for miles, unzipped fly, a face with a straight <coughs> nose, Roman, slight curves, biceps. He had sideburns like some Russian Ivan from the 19th century. Huge, they covered half of his face, oh Christ. This Russian Ivan is not actually a Russian, as we find out. I took a hundred zwaltas and threw them on the ground and started to stamp on them. But he started to yell at me, how dare you throw it on the ground, because the Polish eagle's on it. He was, what was he, some kind of nationalist or something. Something about respect for the nation, the land, the emblem. And me, I was so drunk, I ripped that banknote. I lit it with a lighter, like uh, Nastasia Filipovna. And when I saw him then, his towering legs, I imagined the following fantasy. Me in the tub, and he stands over me. I see those legs like columns from below, and he pisses on me over my breasts and face, and then he spits. So then I whispered to Kanga, here, take the key and lock the bathroom. Let him drink all the beer he wants, but don't let him in the bathroom. Don't let him in. If you ever loved me even a little, if you are truly my friend, lock the door. Lock the fucking door and don't let him in. Don't let him get one foot through that door. In Madame Oleshnitska's fantasy, references to Russian literature and ethnic markers cross or displace Polish nationalism. 
uh, Madame Oleshnitska in an extravagant display of uh, national disrespect, which perhaps can stand in for the act of Witkowski's writing of Lubiewo, uh, destroys the banknote emblazoned with national symbols, inviting domination by the Polish nationalist. In that moment of symbolic destruction, imagining herself as a provocative Russian heroine, uh, she fantasizes about the possible consequences of her unpatriotic act at the hands of an angry nationalist. However, the Polish nationalist is simultaneously imagined as a figure from history, from the 19th century, as a hairy Russian, an Ivan. The 19th century Russian evokes a reviled authority and the legacy of the partitions of the colonizer, although he is marked as uncultured through his unzipped fly. However, this is also exactly what makes him a Louis and thus desirable. Mm -hmm. Oleshnitska takes the key to the bathroom and hides it in her frenzied desire to realize her fantasy. She controls the parameter of the sexual encounter. She solicits it. As Win Wong and other queer theorists have remarked, the relationship between top and bottom is not one of absolute power and powerlessness. While the cultural baggage of bottoming is saturated with patriarchal and misogynist signification, queer activists and scholars have complicated and attempted to reclaim it, not only as a primary site uh, for queer pleasure, but also for the transformative power of powerlessness itself. Passivity, for instance, has been reconceptualized by some queer theorists as receptivity, or quote, an active engagement that accounts for the senses of vulnerability, intimacy, and shame that one necessarily risks in assuming the bottom position. While the bottom does indeed submit to the top, the power relations between the two are in constant flux, with the bottom sometimes controlling sexual aspects of the encounter, such as speed and force. The relation is open to mutual pleasure. Reveling in the possibility of being pissed and spat upon, Oleshnitska orchestrates the encounter through both her provocation of nationalist outrage and through trickery, using the louis as a prop for her sexual pleasure turned inwards, anticipating the moment of humiliation at the uh, hands of the drunken man. The bottom's shame, however, also gestures toward what affect theorists describe as a paradoxical individuation of the self, an uncontrollable relationality toward an other. The encounter between a colonizing top and colonized bottom would posit the pleasure and the tension between the antisocial nature of the encounter, or the intense turn inward toward the self, and the forced heightening of the relation between the shamer and the shamed. A national shame of degradation or debasement at the hands of the Russian soldier, in the case of Lubievo, also produces a rush of intense sexual pleasure and affective connection. This pleasure is entirely taboo in the Polish context as the feminizing shame of being pe penetrated and enjoying it by the very nation against which modern Polishness is constructed seems like the ultimate betrayal. The colonial bottom's excitement is in large part located in this act of national betrayal and in the objection that results from it, but it is also found in the national shame of subjection, uh, subjugation to a foreign power. Witkowski pre presents us with a sexual subculture that thrives on a hybrid form of personal and national degradation that thwarts or flat out rejects Polish resistance to Russian power, inviting us to interrogate Polish martyrological narratives and patriarchal origins of sexual tropes of colonization, uh, and which in turn offers a new perspective on how those who are abjected from the nation might forge their own queer pleasures from hijacking nationalist discourses. 
providing us with new and perhaps unexpected visions of homoslavic kinship. And that is, thank you.